In today's episode of Talent Savvy, we are going to be talking about changing industries. More and more people are quitting, the great resignation we seem to call that, and changing industries while they quit. How do we convince hiring managers to accept those candidates? And should we be targeting different industries? And how can we be targeting different industries? Enjoy the show. Welcome to Talent Savvy, the podcast that inspires you on all things talent. Today, I'm joined from Melbourne by Michael and from Bristol in the United Kingdom by Giles. Giles, you're new to the show. Could you please introduce yourself to our audience? Sure, Baz. Yeah, look, thank you so much for having me. Look, I'll introduce myself as an unashamed geek. I love all things science and engineering. I'm not smart enough to be a scientist or an engineer, though, so I recruit them instead. I've been in the talent game for 15 years now, principally recruitment, but I've also been involved in employee engagement. And I spent a year out sort of designing technical training programs as well. But yeah, really, real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Awesome to have you. And just for our audience, what type of jobs do you currently recruit for and have you recruited for? Oh, so I'm in always engineering or science. Right now I'm in pharmaceuticals, but I, I've been I've been through aerospace and advanced R&D and defense and various other industries as well. But yeah, always, always kind of highly technical niche roles. All right, which is great to again have two people, not just from different continents, but also completely different mindsets within companies because you've been more in the corporate, the bigger, the, the structured organizations, mm-hmm. while Michael, your expertise is more in the startup scale-up business, which for the subject we're talking about might be very interesting to look at how do hiring managers from these two completely different type of organizations look at changing industries, crossing the industry threshold from one completely different type of industry to the other one. Are we looking for that industry experience or not? And the main reason for this is a great report we found. Giles, could you summarize the report for us? Sure. Yeah, this is the McKinsey report, and it's about the, uh, the the quitting trend that just won't quit, aka the the Great Resignation. So this is an interesting report. I mean, we're looking at a sample size here. It's, it's based off a survey. The sample size is over thirteen thousand people across sixteen industries and six countries, and that's Australia, Canada, India, Singapore the UK and the US. And, and you know, no one listening to this is going to be surprised that we're, we're seeing this big uptake in, in people quitting their jobs. This report says that 40% of those people surveyed were thinking about quitting within the next three to six months. What's interesting is what they're doing when they quit, though, because it's not a traditional route. People aren't necessarily, you know, leaving a being a software engineer for one aerospace company and going to be a software engineer for another aerospace company, they're actually moving into into different industries and doing different things that perhaps we would have expected them to, to do before. And so this article is interesting. It talks about their the motivators and a little bit about what is what we as TAE professionals can do to to uh, to address that. Yeah, and it, I found it really interesting that they talk about so many different people changing industries. Of course, it is very much focused on, well, the six countries you mentioned, which are, by the way, countries with a very specific pandemic response where 
as far as I can see from continental Europe, the great resignation is way, way more than what we see, for example, in the Netherlands, Germany, France, where uh, companies were paid to keep people employed instead of people were furloughed and, and the link with the company was mainly severed. And you see also a different mindset from a lot of these these employees. The, the great resignation is really different uh, uh, within continental Europe where the pandemic response by governments was different than, than in the UK, the US and Australia where at least that's the, con- the countries I know their pandemic response the best because I have a lot of contacts there who had a lot of Zoom meetings with during the pandemic to get through the time. So yeah, it's really interesting to see that happening. Michael, you're in, of course, in Australia, one of the countries which is happening. Do you see this trend as well? Do you get a lot of people from different industries applying at your current employer? And and have you seen a lot of that? Yeah, I think we are seeing quite a lot of that here. Now, I think there's some factors in Australia that might be mirrored in some of the other locations that we saw. And one of those here is that we have really low unemployment. So the statistical rate of unemployment here in Australia is at its lowest in almost 50 years. And on an economic kind of level, that means we're almost effectively at full employment. So those people that are changing jobs have a really wide number of jobs to choose from. And perhaps as a result of coming through the pandemic, and as you mentioned, we had a really good response here. Our government really operated on a very social model where we were furloughed, but there were benefits payments that you could get. Companies were given incredible allowances to keep their employees. But I think coming out of that, and if you look at the report, some of the industries that are suffering the biggest amount of resignations, hospitality, travel, tourism, well, those industries have yet to bounce back post-COVID because we still haven't seen that. So I think many of those people can't transfer to a traditional industry because there are no roles. And the other one we've seen is public sector. And I suspect that's just burnout because during the pandemic, they were obviously at work and having to go into the office in a lot of cases. So we've started to see it here. And I think the unemployment rate certainly impacts that. If we still have a huge number of companies hiring and a very, very high number of open jobs. So if it's a candidate market and you're a little bit jaded with your current industry, now is the perfect time because you know there are limited competitors for the job that you're going for and it gives you an opportunity to try different things and coming from a startup I I absolutely love this right in the startup land we often have to convince people to change industries because we don't have the brand and the presence of a big company so we can't attract the people from those kind of potential employers of choice so we have to be more creative so I welcome this and I think My work history would suggest that bringing people in from different backgrounds creates very innovative, very different ideas, people, very different cultures than if you just replicate the same, you know, educated, industry, experienced people who will come in and say, oh, we can't do that because I've tried it five times before. Whereas if you're new to an industry, you go, well, why don't we try this? No one's told me that it can't work because I've never done this before. And I think there's some really interesting correlations that we're seeing now start to stretch up and down the length of industry, particularly here down under. Yeah, I'm, I'm really curious. One thing you mentioned, I mean, you said a lot of people are leaving government. What I'm seeing, and I, I'm currently working for two major government uh, clients right now, and I'm actually seeing a major influx to government jobs. 
Right. I was recently recruiting, or this is six, seven months ago, I was recruiting a recruitment marketeer for a local government. And although all my friends were like, you're never going to find them based <laughs> on uh, just a post and pray model, I'm like, yeah, well, we're still going to try because that's how this government operates. And we got like more qualified candidates than we could place. I mean, we we... I was surprised by the not just the amount, but also the quality of the people applying because they wanted to work in government, which was... Can you put your finger on why that was, Baz? Why do, why do you think that was? I think on the one hand, a lot of people like the idea of working for something with more social impact because government, at least in the Netherlands, still has the air about it that at least you're doing something for society. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, it is a very steady job. The one place ah. where you're not afraid of losing your job and nobody knows what is going to be post-COVID is, of course, the government. And we had uh, several people coming from uh, actually agencies who were unaware of, is there going to be mass unemployment because then nobody's going to use agencies? Are we... And we funded all these companies during the pandemic. Are they going to crash now that they have to pay their debt back? Stuff like that, mm-hmm. I think. So two factors here, I think, that particularly influence that. Number one, we recently had an election and we had a change of government after an extended period of one party. So typically the cycle isn't there. You see people leave because maybe they don't align to the incoming government or maybe they feel there'll be restructures and changes. So they get out to do it voluntarily before they're pushed. I think the second thing we've seen, public sector salaries in Australia are relatively capped. So the increases in salary you get are mandated by wage processes and governments typically want to keep those quite small. And because of this unemployment, we've started to see the private sector salaries actually take off a bit, in some industries significantly so. If you are a software developer in Australia right now, you are probably as happy as you have ever been in your life because the demand is outstripping supply significantly. So I think if you've been working in government, yes, it was safe. Yes, it was secure. But the cost of living and inflation, and I think this is true everywhere in the world, is way up. But certainly in Australia, it is significantly up to levels we haven't seen in a long time. So I think people are leaving there to try and get more money. I mean, and if we look at the report, still the biggest reason why people were leaving their jobs was compensation. And... I don't think that's ever going to change, right? They move for money and different industries as a result may well be paying more because of shortages. And that could also then accelerate this and draw people into sectors that they might otherwise not have considered. It's interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, it says in, in this report that, you know, what, what we traditionally do is to try to draw people from the same industry is exacerbating that, that wage inflation and isn't necessarily solving the underlying problem, which is the, the shortage of skills. And I kind of wonder whether the pandemic's a bit of a bugaboo here. You know, we, 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 we talk about things suddenly changing over the last two years. And, you know, undoubtedly people have had time to consider what they, what they want from life. But it's a, for me, it's a, it's a supply and demand issue. You know, we just have unparalleled demand. I mean, in the UK right now, the, the unemployment rate is 3.8 as I speak. Wow. Live roles in the UK were hovering around 1.3 million, and every month we look at the reports, and it's a, it's another record-breaking month in terms of new new vacancies. Yeah, but let's let's try to move towards also what can we as TA professionals do with the moving industry? On the one hand, I hear you talking about maybe 
addressing crossover industries more you know let's see if we can find a talent pool in a different industry but i'm also wondering hiring managers how open are they to hiring non industry experience and i'm really curious in your <laughs> cases because you're more for the corporate uh, part giles you're more in the uh-huh. startup uh, michael how much Difficulty do you guys have in convincing hiring managers that industry experience isn't everything? <laughs> I, I I wouldn't necessarily break it down by by corporate and startup, although I appreciate there's nuances there. I think it's it's largely role dependent to be to be quite frank. And you know, I, I think our role, just to, to answer your question, I think our, our role as as TA professionals is to sort of educate, inform, and, and question people when when we're given these requirements. I mean, no, everyone listening to this would have had those kind of impossible to fill briefs that we we get from hiring managers sometimes, and and I think it's our our role is to, to push back on that and to provide evidence for for that pushback. But you know, it, it, could a could a petrochemical scientist move into pharmaceuticals? It's going to be it's going to be challenging. Does somebody with a, a procurement background or a recruitment background or a finance background absolutely need to come back from the same industry? It's questionable. I don't think so. Good point. Good point. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think industry by industry, there are going to be cases. Again, looking at it from my perspective of startup, a lot of the work that you do in startup is educating your hiring managers on what are the correlative skills. You know, just because you're a, fin- a fintech startup doesn't mean you're going to get fintech people because they are probably working for bigger, you know, better paid jobs and you're looking for those people who are prepared to take a risk. Often it is someone coming from a different place or a different space. So the more education you can do around that, and I think then the other thing we have to do more of is educate people on the softer skills, those things that are less tangible And I know that goes against the grain, right? Because we should be assessing for everything, right? And we want to make it fair and transferable. However, I think the more work we can do to educate people that here's a core process and it's the same process in all of these industries. So what are the actual things that we're looking for? Do we want someone who is curious and inquisitive and will challenge the status quo? Then you look for industries that have that kind of skill in them. If you need someone who's process-centered and will stay in the lane and color within the lines, there's a lot of industries out there like that. It's identifying those skills and educating them. I think, Giles, that, that word you used, educate, right? If we could educate all of our hiring managers all the time to think differently, our jobs would be a lot easier and we'd have a much more diverse pool of people. And For all that the pandemic has, to some extent, again, I'll use one of your words there, the bugaboo of like, okay, it's the grim reaper of everything. It has opened up opportunities for people perhaps from backgrounds with disability or people who have to work from home, you know, sole parents, people who have caring responsibilities. And that might also be the other thing that's opened this up. You've now got access to a pool of talent that could well be nationwide. Or in some, you know, for some companies, it could be global. And no industry is the same anywhere in the globe. So I think we've seen some flexibility come into it because people had no choice. And once they're on that road, then you can just educate, educate, educate and help them see the value of these different backgrounds. 
Yeah. And if I if I'm just throw a ball at you and just tell me if it's complete and total nonsense or <laughs> if there's some truth in this. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a guy, I had a recruitment agency, and he always said, "Listen, I love people with a hospitality background. I love the barkeepers, the waitresses, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera to become recruiters because he said uh, recruiters need to be able to listen to people, remember what people said, uh, basically a waitress taking orders because then you can uh, really understand what a candidate wants and have a service mentality and usually be able to pick out the bullshitters, which is something a bartender <laughs> might be able to do as well, which was his theory about why he had so much success in hiring people with a hospitality background into the recruitment industry. And the one thing I saw in another report by Radency was actually that food service, accommodation, leisure and hospitality are the industries with the highest quit rates. I know that there's been a lot of people talking about we can't find any decent recruiters. Is there any Thing you can say this has any merit, like transferable skills from one industry to the other, or was this guy talking out of his ass? And am I repeating now complete and total BS? Hi. <laughs> Hey, look, I, my mantra is always attitude and aptitude over specific experience. And, you know, I, I've recruited recruiters who, who've gone into agencies and, and haven't really enjoyed it. And, you know, they, they might have six months experience, but they've, they've ended up being brilliant. And it's because we recruit for behaviors. I think everything else can be taught. Yeah, I would suggest that your particular person there is displaying some very conscious bias. And there may have been success right? And we get that halo effect, don't we, right? Like it worked once, therefore it must work again and again and again. And I'm not saying that some of the things he was suggesting aren't valid because those particular aptitudes might well be present in hospitality people. But if we assume it's in all hospitality people, you're definitely going to come a cropper because as we all know, as patrons of places, for every attentive good listening bartender there's also one rude obnoxious who's not looking at you and it's like you don't exist so i'm not saying it wouldn't work but i'm saying that yeah you, you would want to assess that fairly significantly and try and take that bias away but there might well be things right i mean i worked for a business before where i know the managers loved people who played competitive sport because they felt that showed a particular characteristic I don't know that it actually made a difference, but it made them feel more comfortable about people because they thought it would have a certain drive and demeanor. We've always done these things. We've always ascribed, I think, particular characteristics to particular industries. And we just have to be careful not to make those you know, broad-based assumptions and use that then as a lazy way of you know, avoiding doing the actual due diligence. Preaching to the choir, of course, as uh, somebody who loves his <laughs> assessments and his tests. I did try you a softball there, yes. Yeah, but I totally agree. And uh, I do think that there's, if you look at re skills recruiters need, there might be some more of that also in hospitality. But then, yes, you have to check if the person you're talking to has it. But you might actually specifically target that audience and talking about professional sports by the way i recently learned that ey has a complete sourcing unit purely based on hiring former uh, olympic athletes and genuine the top athletes into their company which i found really interesting i think they have eight people worldwide full-time only to be able to recruit 
former or retired top performance in professional sports, all types of sports. Interesting. Wow. I wonder why that would be, that brand recognition. Like if you bring on board a, a former Olympian, can you parade them out as a, a bit of a, you know, a name for your customers or are they actually finding some real skills of value in those people? What they taught me, and I haven't discussed this at length with, uh, uh, with the person responsible for it, was a bit of both. So it has to do with a bit of brand recognition, but mainly it had to do with the fact that if you are actually on a really high level, like good enough to make the Olympics, you have such a tenacity and such a drive that if you put your mind to something, you probably will be able to learn it. So that's that's basically there. It, it was mainly the, the attitude those people had. That, at least that's what I was told. And especially also, they told me, it really does great within a team. If you have one person in a team who is very dedicated, going strong, like a professional athlete, analyzing their own behaviors and uh, adjusting the training basically to it, it really helps bring a growth mindset to a team. I've seen I've seen a, an assessment company use a sport performance methodology to to uh, as, as a psychometric tool, which is which is really interesting. Yeah, no, that's it's. Um, I'm actually working a bit with a company which does both assessments for professional sports athletes as well as well normal HR departments, basically. And yeah, it it turns out that for every job the qualifications are different, so where you need to score high on is different, but even they found because they come from professional soccer or football as the Americans or uh, as Brits call it, but (laughs) also for every position, it's a different qualification you need. I actually did their test. I would suck as a defender and I'm actually, (laughs) my brain is a pretty good playmaker. My body doesn't agree, but my brain should be wired to be a playmaker. Fantastic. (laughs) All right. So have we, ideas about how to reach those transferable skills and how do we reach out to different industries in order to attract candidates we would like to apply at our industry. Michael, any any suggestions? Well, I think there's a couple of things. And again, if I look into this report and consider some of the reasons they suggested why people are leaving, right? Two of the highest factors they were leaving were uncaring leaders and also lack of meaningful work. So I think there's a really strong possibility that you could use that in your EVP and in your public facing content to display that you're a business that has a caring leader and that does offer meaningful work. And then if you can find anyone in your organization who has had some sort of transferable skill to showcase on the back of that, you could possibly get that trifecta of the reasons you know, that people would have that as a pull factor because we know the push factors are driving them away. So how do we get the pull factors? The other one I've seen recently is people quite publicly proclaiming that they want to get more diverse, that they want to shake things up, that they're looking for people from different backgrounds who think differently, who are going to challenge the status quo, who are going to ask questions. And I think most people would assume that that's who they are if they saw that. Right. Even the people who didn't challenge the status quo would like to think of themselves that they were that kind of, you know, risk taking rule breaker who's going to, you know, come in and kick down doors. So I think it's in the messaging and I think it's in the process of really publicly 
putting that out there and displaying it as part of your EVP and the values that you're living because you could conceivably then have them coming to you without you having to do as much outreach. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, um, I've had the privilege of doing this at scale. Um, so I, I worked uh, a few years ago in a very, very specific engineering field. And no word of a lie, we, we ran out of people. I mean, it's uh, an, an emerging technology and an unestablished talent pool. And so we, we, we had a, a CEO who was a bit of a visionary and, and you know, our, our approach was to create this, this conversion course, we called it. And it was in collaboration with the University of Bristol and some of our sort of partners. Um, and we, we put the, you know, we recruited people from sympathetic backgrounds and basically put them through a very advanced kind of induction process and got them into the business and trained them up to be what we wanted them to be. Uh, and what we did in in that process was, you know, it's, it's persona mapping. You have to look at those those individuals you're looking to attract, and and you you have to sort of look at what is going to attract them. And you know, in, in our case, it was it was about growth. It's about career growth, and and actually working in a market that has this potential. It, we don't have the established talent pools, so by by coming and coming to this program, actually, you're you're adding a lot of value to your career straight away. Yeah, I, I recently uh, was talking to somebody from an insurance company who in America where they said, well, for our actuaries, which is like the most boring of jobs for everybody who's not a non-actuary. And she said, uh, math is the one skill you really need. And what were they recruiting? They said, listen, math teachers in America do not get paid during uh, holidays because America has a really interesting how little can we pay our teaching staff mentality. So she said, uh, we actually said, and that's still the number one reason to to promote, we were sourcing math teachers and just telling them, listen, at least in our case, you get paid 12 months a year and you actually get a 13 month of bonus uh, at the end of the year in an insurance firm and your salary might be higher as well. So they were actively recruiting math teachers based on also, in their case, part of the EVP was like, well, we're in finance, we pay well. Right. So, yeah, I think, as you mentioned, Giles, the persona, Yeah. right? If you, know, if you know what it is that you need, and that's the bit that often businesses don't. And I think, you know, we would all agree that often businesses just rely on the, I want someone with five years experience doing exactly this job, but, you know, down the road with our competitor. And so there's not perhaps as much emphasis put on persona and put on those baseline skills. So if you take the time to do the research and build those personas, you can then do that mapping exercise to see what else is out there and what other verticals and industries and spaces might be applicable and design really interesting and attractive campaigns and showcase some interesting ideas that get people to think. And if you can get them thinking, and you know, pondering, hey, would this potentially be an opportunity? Then you're halfway there. Knowing who you are, knowing what you need, and knowing what else is comparable. If you've got that nailed, then I think you can really, you know, make absolute hay right now with the cross-functional upskilling of your business. All right. On the last note, and if you have trouble convincing your hiring managers why cross-industry knowledge might be interesting, let me just end up here with a short story of how we ended up with the microwave because it was 
designed or, or actually the, the R&D was done at some point at a defense firm called Raytheon, which mainly built fighter jets for the U.S. Army. And they just couldn't figure out why somebody wanted the hot dog warm in 30 seconds in their cockpit because, let's face it, you are wearing your helmet in a fighter jet anyway, until they hired somebody from Consumer Electronics and they licensed it out. And that's how we ended up getting the microwave about 15 years after the technology had been invented. So that's what cross-industry knowledge could do for you. And on that note, I would like to thank you all for listening, ladies and gentlemen. If you like our podcast, give us a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. Share it with a friend. Share it on LinkedIn that you like us. And we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.